Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for New Comics on sale October 14th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker Marcus, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, have you watched any more awesome John Carpenter horror movies lately? You know, I haven't. I did just watch An American Werewolf in London for the first mm. time, which was a delight. Oh, that's um, so good. Yeah, that's what so I call fun. a triple D, a ding-dang delight. <laughs> Absolutely. Our reading club is with Mark Wade, writer, editor, uh, and for some companies, publisher, uh, Bon Vivant and Man About the World <laughs> in Comics. He is fantastic, and his choice for the reading club is Omega the Unknown from 1976, the original. And I will say that's probably the most underrated Marvel classic that most people probably haven't read. I'm so stoked for this week because exactly that, like more than any of the reading clubs I think we've done, one, because of how I think esoteric this book was, I don't even know if I'd ever heard of it before we were doing this episode, um, but I'm so excited for anybody who's listening who hasn't read that book to dive in and get to know like all the weirdness, but all of the delightful wonderful glory of that book it is so special it's a really special book yeah uh but before we get there we have to talk about the new comics out this week tucker kick it off all right we're starting out with amazing spider-man number 50 it is written by nick spencer with art by patrick gleason colors by edgar delgado and letters by vcs joe caramagna i am really digging this book more than ever right now. I think I've said this before, but every single time we enter a new era or a new chapter, whether that's literal narrative kind of chapter or whether that's just in terms of the tone, spirit, how high the drama is playing with this book, I'm just like, of course, somebody, Nick Lowe, I guess, heard Nick Spencer's pitch for this book and could only say, uh, yeah, of course. It is just... It's really, really playing on a level of drama that I adore and that is totally worthy of being uh, Amazing Spider-Man and hitting a bunch of great landmarks. Um, there are some really shocking stuff that goes on in this issue that was so cool. The Sin Eater, Norman Osborn, um, uh, stuff with Pete, stuff like there is so much going on in here and somehow it all weaves together beautifully. It feels like classic Amazing Spider-Man to me. It really does. I think it's totally slotting into that kind of mode. Um, and so, you know, it, just looking at it from, again, from the point of view of Nick Spencer, this is all very vague because there are such big moments happening in this book right now, even one or two issues ago, that I still kind of don't want to talk about it. But, um, uh, uh, you know, Nick is operating on such a level. He's doing backflips and making it look easy. Um, that's how good he is and that's how good this book is. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um, this also is, it, it's just, it's the beginning of Last Remains and like the proof is in the pudding with this issue. Yeah. It's like, yeah. here's where we are. Here's where we're going. Buckle up, get ready. This is going to be a ride and it's, it's going to be something else. It's really good. Uh, while that is the beginning of a big story, Avengers number 37 is the end of the Age of Khonshu arc. It is by Jason Aaron and Javier Garon. Colors by Jason Keith and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Look, if you want to see the Avengers versus Khonshu, the god of the moon, uh, the moon knights, you know, god, then that's in here. If you want to see She-Hulk running around with mummies clawing at her, drawn by Javier Garon, it's in here. If you want to see Captain America punching werewolves, it's in here. If you want to see Moon Knight versus the Avengers, it's in here. This book freaking rules. This arc is so good. And what's coming next is all about the Phoenix. It's just like Jason being like, are you going to give me the Avengers? Buckle up, buttercup. It's so good. All right. Um, now, we're jumping over a certain mutant mag this week because we're going to we're gonna start doing all the Ten of Swords books uh, in chapter order. So that takes us now to our next book, which is Captain America number 24, which is by Ta-Nehisi Coates and Daniel Acuna. 
with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I see those two names in the opening pages of a book, and I am excited. Cap, you know, for being, you know, the shield slinger, for being the great war hero, a lot of the power of Cap comes from his ideology, comes from the confrontation of values between him and a supervillain, between him and people who are supposed to be his allies. That's the story of Captain America to me. Uh, And this issue has some really amazing scenes that are just intense discussions that are just hitting pay dirt discussions in terms of everything that's been going on in this book in terms of uh where this book is moving next um i love it because it goes from these very intense very um at times even unhinged moments uh to just fun and delightful and um romantic it really runs the gamut um and at the end of the day i can't talk about this issue without talking uh, and trying not to scream about Daniel Acuna because for me the way he draws Cap in this issue is the definitive Cap that is exactly what Cap looks like in my mind there's also like the way that he plays with shadows a lot in this issue which is so cool it just heightens those moments something we talk about often when um, there are dialogue scenes or discussion that's happening between characters how hard that is to make that riveting and he just does it. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it is a true master at work. His style, I think, is totally perfect for what this book is. Um, and it makes sense. I think the way that uh, Tanasi Coates writes comics, um, uh, obviously given his work with Daniel in the past on Black Panther, I think um, there's just something about those two uh, that just makes perfect, perfect sense. And um, this is another issue that I think uh, bears that uh, out in, in, in incredible fashion. Uh, one of my cats was in here yelling because he wanted <laughs> to make sure we talked about how tastefully, but tastefully sexy yes. this book is because it is on in this issue. It is great um, and not like lascivious. It's just it's just great. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, people who are into each other and having a good time and it's terrific it's and it's really funny uh all right another great issue is captain marvel number 22 written by kelly thompson pencils by lee garbett colors by tamara bonvalain and letters by vcs clayton cowles i love this issue so much because well one i love pretty much everything kelly writes i love the entire run of captain marvel but i really loved the Captain Marvel, the end story that we had last year, which was by the same creative team and gave us this alternate future in which Carol in, in the in the future, in this universe, she sacrificed herself to save her friends, her family, her world. Um, this actually brings our Carol into that reality, that future, that possibility. And from there, it's just... It's it's incredible. It's really something special. Uh, if you have not read Captain Marvel: The End, I highly suggest you check it out. It's on Marvel Unlimited. It's it's we collected it already in I, I believe a trade with all the other The End issues. Um, so it's something to definitely read before you read this. But if you don't, you're still gonna be fine. But man, you're gonna love it even more if you read that at The End. Oh yeah. Now we move on to Immortal Hulk number 38, which is written by Al Ewing with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose and Bellardino Bravo, colors by Paul Mounts, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. This issue is intense. It's emotional. Essentially, Al is just the way that he structures this issue. And I think, you know, it's the expert work that we've come to expect from him. But the way that he structures this issue um is uh he's just setting himself up for success he's setting you up for heartbreak and for excitement and terror but he grounds this story um uh, with the simple tale of a child um but the way he does it and the way that he makes it so uniquely immortal hulk is incredible because it's also weird it's also horrifying in different ways but those horrifying elements can be brought back down to earth in very humanizing ways the rhythm of this book how it starts out slow and then just ramps up the pace ramps up the pace and then kind of out of nowhere just will check you in the gut and make you feel thing it is really incredible 
it's that thing where we talk about Joe Bennett doing pencils of some of the most unbelievable, awful, gross, amazing achievements with body horror and with horror in general. But we can never lose sight of the fact that the emotion at the core of this story is so powerful. Um, and the way that Al writes it, the way that Joe executes that visually is incredible. And that is the real, real, I think, strength of this book. As we are really, you know, so deep into this story, that I think more and more will become what I think of when I think of Immortal Hulk is the emotional power that it brings. Um, because, uh, you know, it, it grounds those huge moments of, of wildness and weirdness and, and strangeness. Um, it brings them down to earth in a way that, you know, it feels like you are transforming into the Hulk. It feels like your insides are coming out and your outsides are going in because it is asking so much of you, but it just feels so right. Again, this is another uh, verbal essay that I'm going on about this book like <laughs> we have done so many times. Um, just read the damn comic. Just read it. Yeah, it's so um, all right, let's move on to Marvel Zombies Resurrection number three, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, pencils by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. This is bleak AF, y'all. It is a dark book because it is zombies and family. And look, it's a it's really good. It's so well done and the action and the characterization and everything about it. And I think I have a hard time with this because it's so well put together. It is so emotionally charged and the characters you, you are connecting with, you know, blade and Peter Parker and Val and Franklin Richards and, uh, 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 a sentinel that has been reprogrammed to act like a nanny and Chewie the Flurkin and like their desperate, desperate quest to try and find a way to fix the world and reverse the like zombification of things. You get a lot of information here about like what's really going on and how far gone everything really seems to be. It is a nightmare world. It is really like, there's a lot of heavy, brutal moments in here. There's one where you meet a character who has survived, but at what cost? And it's just, it's a lot. So if you're having a tough day, put this book to the side, um, but definitely come back to it. Because this is, Marvel Zombies Resurrection is really good, but it, it's it's dark. All right, now we are going to a galaxy far, far away with Star Wars Darth Vader number six. It's written by Greg Pak with art by Raffaella Yenko, colors by Niraj Manan, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. A um, little behind-the-scenes info on this one, folks. Uh, one of the editors of Star Wars comics uh, here at Marvel, Tom Groneman, reached out to me and a bunch of different folks in new media and around the company to say, hey, Star Wars Darth Vader 6 is coming out, and it's a really, really, really big issue. How can we make sure as many people know about it as possible? And I'll tell you, that doesn't happen often. So I originally read this book about a month ago now for that, uh, and boy, oh boy, was he right. Uh, the work that Greg is doing on this series is... Uh, it's reaching the bar, man. I gotta say, Charles Soule really, really put the bar high up there with his run on Vader. Um, and now Greg is, he is doing an incredible job. Um, essentially where we are in broad strokes right now is, you know, Vader went off on this kind of journey into his own past. And in doing so, has he kind of has found himself in strange ways at odds with the Emperor. And guess what? You would have guessed, but the Emperor does not like that. So the Emperor is now taking it upon himself to challenge Vader, to really go after Vader. It's, in a way, Vader versus the Emperor right now. And the way that ties all into Vader's memories of his past, which is a, a, a visual hallmark of this story that I love, these kind of flashes of red. You just get a little bit of a, a peek into the mind of uh, the the one formerly known as Anakin Skywalker is so effective and it's so incredible. And there's a couple really great splash pages in this book. Uh, where we go is so cool. How we go there, what the Emperor does to Vader is so cool. And then I'll say it, one of the most unexpected things 
happens. I won't tell you where it happens in this book, but I was so blown away by it. Hey, by the way, we also talked about uh, Daniel Acuna on his work on Captain America. Daniel Acuna is doing the cover for Star Wars Darth Vader number seven. And boy, oh boy, it is a thing of beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you needed yet another reason to read this series, that's one for you. Um, But this, again, comes highly recommended. Tucker, are you going to play that Star Wars Squadrons game, the the flying blasty game? You know, I don't have a game thing, but what I will do is go on the tubes and watch maybe hours of other people (laughs) doing that, which is a, a favorite pastime of mine. You could watch hours and hours of that game on YouTube, or you could watch hours and hours of stuff about Warhammer 40,000, which is uh, a big debut for us this week. It's Warhammer 40,000, Marnius Calgar, number one. It is written by Kieran Gillen, art by Jason Burroughs, inks by Ishaba Tartaglia, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Um, This one is something I was, like, walked in completely fresh on. Had never... Mm -hmm read or seen or played anything warhammer 40,000 so you know this is uh a big thing if any of our listeners out there are warhammer 40,000 players or fans let us know because um this is a primer for the world of warhammer but also it's something that that is going to provide a lot of backstory for character particularly uh the the main title character here marnius calgar and what has what drives him what his past is like where he's going um this book is bonkers violent like this is just Jason Burroughs, like born to draw this title, just exploding bodies of like, you know, heretics and religious zealots and wild suits of armor and all kinds of gnarly, gnarly stuff. There's creatures and and space talk and all kinds of uh, madness going on in here. And it's like I can tell that Kieran is just living his best life doing this. He's mm-hmm. a big gamer. Uh, I, I know he's a big Warhammer 40,000 fan. So this is right up his alley. Uh, it's something to definitely check out. If you are curious about that universe, um, if you are a fan of it, this is a must read. Uh, totally agreed. And look at the end of the day, the wave of Kieran Gillen is back upon us and I could not be more excited for that. Just the best. All right. Now we are moving on to our, New segment, which is our Ten of Swords segment. Uh, we need which, a cool. We need a cool nickname. I know. We, we, I, I know. I was thinking the same thing. We need a jingle or something. Um, uh, we'll get on that. We'll get on that. Uh, uh, the first Ten of Swords installment this week is Chapter Six, which is Hellions Number Five. It is written by Zeb Wells with art by Carmen Carnero, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. Always a pleasure to read a book that is illustrated by Carmen Carnero. I love the way that Zeb Wells writes Mr. Sinister. It is delightful, deliciously evil. I still can't quite put my finger on when he is being genuine to the rest of the Hellions, when he's being duplicitous. And that's exactly the kind of chaos that I think completely embodies this book. Uh, and this corner of um, uh, of what's happening in both Dawn of X and Ten of Swords. Um, uh, this issue is very much the entry point for the Hellions into all the Ten of Swords actions. It is really, really fun. At the end of the day, though, this is a uh, showcase for Mr. Sinister for me, including down to the very last line, which is just a delight and so exciting, so fun. Um, And uh, I think it's really just something that Zeb has so perfectly keyed into. Uh, And it feels like the, once you can kind of put that key into the door and open it up, there you will find the rest of Hellions and the rest of Ten of Swords. It is so much fun. Um, Continues to be the chaotic team that should never be a team. Delightful book that I love to read. Yes. Uh, you said it's a delight. Tucker, I would go you one better and say it's a triple D, a ding oh. delight. Whoa. Sure is. Get, again, sound the alarm. Another triple D is <laughs> New Mutants number 13, written by Ed Brisson, pencils by Rod Reese, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Rod is like, Rod born to draw this title. You know, mm-hmm. he is, you know, he's got elements of Bill Sienkiewicz in his work. And then when you give him the fodder of drawing a book that, 
features new mutants characters particularly warlock and the weirdness that you can get away with with warlock on top of that you have krakoa you know the personification of krakoa in here it's amazing to see what rod gets to pull out and does and and really crafts in the art there's a i'm looking at one page that doesn't even have isn't even focused on like warlock and stuff it's got exodus one of my like favorite you know sassy boy marvel x-men villains now part of krakoa characters and just the way rod draws and paints and and does line work on this it is spectacular um this issue is, uh, yes, part seven of Ten of Swords, and it focuses on the gathering of two swords. We've, we know that Magic will have one of them. She has the Soul Sword, but we really solidify in here the um, claiming of another sword, and it belongs to Cypher. But the sword itself is Warlock, and it's so cool in the way they talk about it and the way they frame it up and how a terrible idea this is for the 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 mutants of Krakoa because Cypher is not a fighter he he's not a warrior Warlock is barely a warrior even though he can be very powerful um this is a, a just a terrible terrible scenario to put these characters in and I can't wait to see how it plays out totally um all right our last book this week and chapter eight of Ten of Swords is Cable Number Five. It's written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. We are alongside Cable and Gene and Cyclops, uh, who are on the Sword Station trying to figure out what went down there. That's where the story takes place. Um, after that, it is part Ten of Swords. It's part Alien. It's part things that I can't even find a reference for. Um, uh, but when you're operating at the level that Jerry Duggan is operating at, these things seem so easy. Um, and then the other thing that I was thinking when I was reading this is just like, um, because we're in outer space, a lot of it's dark and there's a lot of strange colors that are popping out of nowhere. You know, Phil Noto, if he was just working as a colorist, would be one of the best colorists in the business. But it's not only that, he's also one of the best pencilers and inkers in the business. And it all comes together to be this incredibly beautiful book that is tense, it's scary, uh, but it's also uh, a really, really vital part of the buildup to um, what's going to be a really, really big clash that is one by one um, coming together in uh, the pages of every single Ten of Swords book. Uh, and I just get more and more excited for it every single week. It is great stuff. Tucker, I have two suggestions for names for our Ten of Swords section. Sword Talk, which is a little vanilla. It's fine. <laughs> Doesn't rhyme. Yeah. And then, um, oh, I, it, it just escaped my brain. Sword something. Sword. Sword. Never mind. It doesn't matter. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah. My brain. Come back next apart. week. This is the, 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 what, what happens? Your brain melts because you're, you know, you're dealing with a child, a <laughs> uh, very tiny human. Uh, producer Jorge said, uh, sword stuff. That could also definitely work for us <laughs> later on. There is one more 10 of swords title this week. It is the 10 of swords handbook. It basically gives you huge bios for some really important characters, including apocalypse, captain Britain, uh, Krakoa, like all of Krakoa Wolverine and, the entirety of the X-Men. If you just want like a deep dive into who and what and, and like everything that's going on, this handbook is great. It's like 55 pages long. So definitely suggest you check that out. Oh yeah, totally agreed. All right, that's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. And now going on to collections in the world of print, uh, we have Captain America Epic Collection Monsters and Men, Guardians of the Galaxy by Al Ewing, Volume 1, Then It's Us, Iron Man 2020 Robot Revolution, Marvel Monograph, The Art of Mark Brooks, Marvel vs. Venom, Winter Soldier by Ed Brubaker, The Complete Collection, and X-Men Milestones Age of X. Yeah, and then, of course, on Marvel Unlimited, 
Um, we have uh, a bunch of new issues in there, including Captain America Marvel's Snapshot number one, which was really, really good. Uh, issue of Immortal Hulk, Hawkeye Freefall number six, completing that limited series. I believe Ant Man number five completes that limited series. New issue of Deadpool and Spider Ham, and plenty more. You can check out the full list on Marvel.com. Uh, and while you are perusing Marvel Unlimited for those books, make sure you are reading Omega the Unknown from 1976 and 1977, because right now we are about to talk about that amazing series with writer and uh, just just swell fella Mark Wade. Mark Wade, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. You have no idea how excited Tucker and I are, not just to talk about our reading club selection, but just to have you on the show. That is that is very sweet. I'm going to have you guys follow me around and just say that all day long. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Today we are talking about Omega the Unknown from 1976 and 1977. Um, Mark, this was your pick. Yep. Uh, tell us why you chose it. It, at the time it came out, it was my favorite comic, and it still is one of my favorite comics of all time. Some of it is the element of, you know, when you have a favorite band that nobody else knows about, and you kind of feel good about it. that. That's some of that is the, is the act, you know, is what's going on here. Is like, oh, I, I know something cool that most people don't know about. But beyond that, it just arrested me from the start. It wasn't so much Omega, the guy in the red and blue suit who is clearly, you know, a, a tip of the hat to Superman. But it's James Michael Starling, that kid who is really the star of the, of the book. Real quickly, for those who have not had a chance to read yet, the status quo is this. Strange visitor from another planet, mute, shows up on Earth, adult. Uh, we don't know much about his background. We don't know really what his origins are or where he comes from. And he comes across this child prodigy of like, I don't know, 13, 14, I forget how old Michael Starling is, uh, whose parents die in a car accident, but they turn out to be robots. There's no idea what that's about. And then he meets Omega, and the two of them are somehow linked, but they can't figure out how, so sometimes they're together, most of the times they're apart. Two different stories are being told at the same time. It's this puzzle box of, of stories laid onto each other that I really like. Uh, it just sadly, like too many puzzle boxes, never had a satisfactory solution, but I didn't care. I was just rolling along with it. This one, this really feels like a comic book aesthetes choice yeah. because of the specificity of it, because of the relative esoteric nature of the book, but just really the content of the book as well. It's a really thoughtful series in a way I was totally not prepared for. It's really, really unique. Yeah. Maybe I should have been a little bit more prepared for it because it's, uh, you know, partially from the mind of Steve Gerber. But yeah. Mark, did you pick this up as it was coming out? Did you come to it later? What was your origin story with this book? I was James Michael Starling's age at the time. Wow. And I think that was a big part of it. I, you know, bought it coming in uh, right off the stands. And I was also like the child prodigy. I was the kid who got bumped up a couple of years in school. I was the kid who was the the nerdy brainy kid in the back that, you know, got bullied and the and because I was two years younger than everybody else in class. So I had that going going against me too. And so in James Michael Starling, clearly I, you know, I found some sort of spirit animal there. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in in all over Alabama. I grew up, I was born in Hueytown, Alabama, population 1772. Salute. Um and then all over the deep south, Tupelo, Mississippi all over Alabama. That was my growing up. And let me tell you how hard it was to find Marvel comics down there in the 70s. It was, newsstand distribution was great for other companies, but Marvel had a very difficult time getting on the stands there. So there were only a couple of stores I could find Marvel comics at. Uh, I could never find the 50-cent giants, the 64-pagers, anything that wasn't a standard 32-page comic. I had to wait every month for that one weekend. I could go to Tupelo, Mississippi and dive in like a porpoise <laughs> to that stuff. But so so finding every Marvel comic was was more of a challenge than you think. I, I, I envy having comic stores. I envy the idea that you have a pull list. My guy, you know, I, I you don't know what it's like. I don't want to sound like you know, Grandpa Simpson, but you don't know what it's like to bicycle from Rexall Drug to Rexall Drug to 7-Eleven 
hoping that there's one issue of this thing there that somebody else didn't snap up. So that's where I grew up. That was the circumstances under which I was reading comics. As a kid, had you ever been to New York City? Because the New York City in this book is, it's like the exact, like the 1970s, like vision of New York City. Yeah, it's Hell's Kitchen. I mean, it's 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 dark and it's no. I I had never been in New York until I was like twenty five, and it was the guy. I dreamed about this. I you know I lived in East Nowhere, Alabama. I dreamed of New York City and going, and I'll never forget still being on a plane as an adult and seeing Manhattan for the first time. You know, from the plane window, and I'll never forget uh, in the in the big price guides every year, there'd be giant ads for these big New York comic book stores. And they all sounded like they were the size of Toys R Us. And I was, you know, that was the big dream. <clears throat> and I will also, you know, so I'll never remember, I'll never forget once I get off the plane and get settled, hitting a few of these stores and finding out that they're the size of my bedroom. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the insane prices they were asking for back issue comics. So that was, that was part of my, exposure to New York, but still it's, but you're right. It was very reflective of, of what the media's perception of and what we were, what we were fed in, in TV and movies about what New York was at the time, a little seedy, dark, super dangerous. Don't walk in Central Park, that sort of thing. And, and this book captured that pretty bang on. What other books were you reading regularly at the time? Because this, because this series is so different. Yeah. I'm curious about like the the landscape that you leapt off of, you know, in relation to whatever other kind of weekly comics you might have been reading. I was I was reading every superhero comic there was. I was reading the mystery comics until I had nightmares when I was a child and my parents said never again. So <laughs> uh, but all the superhero stuff. I think I at that point I just it was a gradual thing. Again, difficulty finding this stuff. So I've been reading comics since I was like six. But I hadn't started reading Marvel comics until I was maybe 10 because they were so scattershot. And then when I would pick one up, it would be part two of a three-part story. And I didn't know what I was getting into. And I could never find the next part. So Spider-Man 100 was officially my first Marvel comic where I started collecting Marvel mm -hmm. comics. And from there on, it was, it was the way Stan wanted the Marvel Universe to work, right? I would read Spider-Man. But then there'd be some reference to the Human Torch. So then I would go read Fantastic Four. And then they would have some reference to the X-Men. And then I would go read that. And, oh, this character's also an Avenger. I'm going to read that. And so it was that, that, that was the plan. That was Stan's, you know, goal is to get you reading the whole Marvel Universe by doing that connection. And it was much easier at the time because those books were like 20 cents. So you could afford to gamble 20 cents. It's much, much harder now to collect every single Marvel comic. And that's not a slight on Marvel comics. It's the same with anything. It's just, you know, we're, it's it's impossible to watch every TV show. It's impossible to see every movie. It's just, it's, but back in the day, you could conceivably do that. Thankfully now with Marvel Unlimited, everybody can read pretty much every Marvel comic. That Good comes out. segue. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> well which done. Is, which is great because that's how, you know, <laughs> I, I, I imagine Tucker and I, that's definitely how we read this. Mark, did you have a, do you have, physical copy still did you have a trade what did you have to read this on trades what do you what do you what do you i mean i'm, <laughs> I'm old dude we had single copies i don't know if you if those survived all your trips around the world <laughs> yeah i've got i i a few years ago i got rid of all the floppies kind of broke my heart but it was the deal was with the dealer i dealt with was you got to take everything you got because if i start going through and trying to you know, curate what goes and what stays. I'm going to give you half a box of comics at the end of the day. You got to take everything. It's got to be cold turkey. And you got to take the stuff that, you know, you got to take the Charlton comics that no one else would read. You got to take the stuff that, that I collected and never read. You got to take that stuff away. Uh, so still have all the trades, but digital saved my life. You know I mean? If, yes, there's nothing quite like reading an actual physical comic book under a tree with a peanut butter sandwich on a summer day. Totally get that. But for me personally, the trade-off of I can now take my entire Marvel Comics collection on an airplane with me and read whatever I want, that was worth the trade-off for me. Could you talk, Mark, a little bit about, you know, you, you, you mentioned how 
far away a place like New York City felt. And yeah. in a lot of ways, that, that can be seen as the kind of home base for, in certain ways, the Marvel Universe, a bunch sure. of different Marvel characters, things like that. What was it like growing up and, you know, ha reading a story like this, which partially takes place on some alien planet, partially takes place in New York City, um, there's clearly a little bit more of a tether, like you said, with uh, James Michael being a similar age to you. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on if you could kind of cast your mind back now, or do some retrospective uh, analysis of like how 13 year old Mark placed himself in relation to this fictional alien planet and New York city. Right. And if they ultimately kind of were as real as each other. I see what you're saying. It's very meta what you're saying, but I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> they were I, my answer is yeah they were both sort of real to me and that's in that same sense right i mean again new york city may as well have existed on another planet you know uh but that said again growing up in nowhere alabama uh it's it's not that i didn't love my parents and that i love my family or love my schoolmates or whatever but the itch to get the hell out of there you know, from a young age was very strong and not to, and again, I regret that now because now I go back to Alabama to sort of recharge my batteries every year or two, or at least I could back when we could travel. <laughs> and I, there's so much there that is awesome. But at that age, you know, I was, I saw my very first memory in this world is seeing Elvis Presley on TV doing his 1968 comeback special. And the idea that this humble kid from Tupelo, Mississippi, came from nothing, could turn into this, was part of my inspiration. Like, I, I gotta get out of it, I, got, I want that. And it, if he could do it, maybe I can too. So you'll be looking for my comeback special on NBC next summer. <laughs> Big and greasy. It's going to be wonderful. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I want to go back to thinking about the um, the sort of your your reading, your habits, and stuff like that. So you mentioned you you sort of fell into uh, Stanley's honey trap of okay, you read this book, then you go into this book. What about the creators? Were you recognizing the writers and artists at all at that time? I was starting to. This is what really pulls me to this. But if, if Omega were the same exact concept, but it wasn't written by Steve Gerber, it wouldn't have the pull for me. It's for the first, what, eight years or so of Marvel Comics. It was Stan, Stan down the line. Every once in a while, somebody would come along, Larry Lieber would write a story or whatever. But basically the edict was, write like Stan. And so Roy Thomas comes along. And now he's the second hand. He's the, he's the, the you know, the right hand man. And the edict to him is basically, I don't know whether it was specifically spoken to him, but it was certainly understood. Write like Stan. Give a little bit of your own voice, Roy, but basically write like Stan. Gerber, Steve Englehart, Jim Starlin, guys like that who all came along at the same time in the early 70s were the first Marvel writers to come on with their own voice, who un understood what Stan was bringing to the table, but didn't feel a compulsion to mimic Stan. And I responded very well to that. Not that I didn't like Stan, but I just responded very well to this sense of freshness that these guys were learning on the job, that you could see them grow, that you could see them get better at writing from issue to issue. That really responded to me. And that sets a bar for me to this day. That I, As an editor, as a publisher, I always say that I would rather read a slightly flawed book with by someone with a real strong voice and a unique voice than a really super slick professional you know really nice comic by somebody who doesn't you know is kind of writing by the numbers it doesn't have that same flair i look for a voice that is so fascinating thank you so many different elements of that are, are so fascinating i think under talked about in general, when when people look back at the lineage of of Marvel Comics and the Marvel Universe, you just mentioned you've been you know you've been in so many different positions in the world of comics. Um, uh, when you think back to this series, when you think back to even specific moments that take place in this book, um, you know it, it, it was so much fun reading it. I was reading it for the first time. That moment where. 
um, James Michael realizes like, oh, it, this must be real. You know, yeah. the, this this dream is is real. It, it's such an interesting hook into the story. Yeah. Um, I I'm just curious about your th- your thoughts on how this it 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 almost feels like a um a slightly skewed strange um uh, version of the classic peter parker or modern day kamala khan um type uh, origin story for a character just in general when you look back on this whatever role you're playing in the creation of comics right. how influential is a story like this to you that's a great point. And I th- it, uh, it underscored, I think, very concretely to me, something that I've come to realize is a hallmark of Marvel Comics. If you think back to it, almost all Marvel characters are born from a combination of tragedy and arrogance hmm. that uh, Tony Stark, clearly, Reed Richards, you know, uh, the Hulk, you know, you go on and on, pick them all, you know, it's Spider-Man. Uh, and James Michael broke that mold a little bit. There wasn't really an arrogance to him, but it was the tragedy. And that's, I cannot underscore enough for younger writers. Like, that's such an important part of, of a superhero origin or superhero adjacent origin, because otherwise you've got a character who doesn't really have any weaknesses, who doesn't really have anything going against them. Nobody wants to read about a character who, you know, everything is sunny. You know, everything is is great and there's no real problem. So this is, you know, so Michael's got that tragedy and clearly Omega does too, coming from a dead world. I just, my great heartbreak, and this is a slight spoiler, is that the mystery was never satisfactorily revealed. That Gerber left the series with the promise that it would be continued in Defenders, which he was writing at the time, except that he left Defenders and left Marvel and... It was handed over to the Defenders at some point, and the resolution wasn't great. I spent the rest of my adult life plaguing Steve at every turn. Please tell me. Please tell me where you were going. I'll give you whatever you want. I'll donate to the Hero Initiative. I will do, I'll come wash a car. Just tell me. And without fail, he was, again, Steve was great to me. He was sweet. He was very nice, smart, funny to talk to, but would say without fail. Now, that's the one thing I can't tell you, that he and his co-author, Mary Screenis, had made a pact that they would never reveal unless they could reveal it themselves in a story. And now Steve passed away years ago and Mary is like, no, not a word. So we'll never know. That makes me think of like Buzz Aldrin who had his own first words on the moon in yeah. his mind and has sworn to never say it. It's a similar kind of thing. I'm uh, sorry, Ryan. I am voracious. I'm attacking this line of thinking because it's so fascinating to me. You know, we're talking about the origin story of James Michael here. We're talking about where it went. And the fact that it's unresolved is so interesting. And I'm thinking back to, again, young Mark Wade. Yeah. And I am just so interested in what were the roots, you know, various creators that we talked to. Someone I don't want to embarrass you here but i'm also not you know spilling any secrets that i'm so fascinated in the origin story of a young kid who loves marvel comics who then goes on to be one of the greats thank you in all of marvel comics and all of comics like uh, let's just say all of them let's say all of comics let's say all how about all of literature (laughs) as we were thinking about this i was just sorry to break in but like as we were starting to talk about this like man i wish there was a way for us to talk about your stuff on Flash and Impulse, but eh, whatever. We're never going to talk about that here. No, that's not. No, a, that's not what that's this. A, that's a that's a conversation. <laughs> that's a coffee conversation we'll have yeah. after this. Yeah. So my line of thinking here is, as this as a kid who was um, a little bit out of fish out of water, a couple grades ahead of him. Um, do you feel like the fact that this story went unresolved was a little bit of a motivating factor in your creativity, huh. in terms of saying like? Oh, I wish I knew what went on there. And inevitably, I'm sure you have thought of a million different possibilities yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you feel like that that very concept of it being an imperfect book, an imperfect ending, um, was a little bit of fuel for you in that way? I see what you're saying. And it's a great question. And other people might say yes. 
but we are we are skipping over a big part of my development. Not on your not not your fault, but some, this is again part of the development of me as a as the living legend that I am now. Um, <laughs> I didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. I had no aspirations and no intentions of being a writer. I wanted to be an editor. That was my goal. Hmm. Uh, I knew I wanted to be involved in comics, and I'd done some non-prose writing nonfiction writing when I was in high school and in college, newspapers and, and that sort of thing. And I had a way with words. I mean, I clearly had facility with the language, but I didn't think it was within my reach. And then I was an editor for a couple of years and it was like a boot camp. I, I had, because I was working on so many different books and so many different projects, all these scripts would come across my desk from every single writer in the medium. And in two years, I learned so much about writing more than I could have in like 10 years on my own. Right. And so from there, that more than anything was what gave me the confidence to, okay, maybe I can do this. Let's try one. Let's try a couple. Let's see how we go. And I've been insanely lucky because since then I've, I've had an unbroken run since like 89. Um, to, so to go back, circle back to your question, good question, good observation, almost there. But it's not quite that simple. Mm. Um, I want to, you know, on the thinking of uh, talking about the the way this wasn't quite resolved the way um, anybody would have wanted it to be. Uh, I want to make sure we give credit to the creators of the run um, because yes. it is uh, conceived and written by Steve Gerber and Mary Screenus, uh, illustrated for the most part by Jim Mooney, colors by uh, a host of creators, Petra Goldberg and more. Um, there is one issue which I was... I like got taken aback because it was a Roger Stern issue and like Jim yeah. only inked it. And I was like, I don't know what the story was behind that like gap. I can tell you, I can tell you, which is that Steve for all his strengths, as anyone will tell you, was the world's greatest procrastinator. And he was, <laughs> he was the biggest dread, dreaded deadline doom there was mm -hmm. allegedly in, in comics that time. So as good as he was, you know, there's so many books that either came in just under the wire or didn't make it, and would have. And so, Marvel at the time had a policy where they would they would just have fill-ins in the drawer. They would have, get somebody to do a one-issue, you know, one-off that didn't really connect. You could slot in anywhere, and also, it was such a smaller world. Jim, you know, Roger knew Steve. Roger knew Mary. Everybody knew each other. So. It, doing a fill-in was simply is an issue of, I kind of, we probably already talked about where it's going. You know, we, they probably already met over dinner a few months ago just to talk about what they're doing. Um, and not to knock Sterno, he did a really good job with the cards he was dealt. But yeah, there's that that one issue in there that's sort of like the, you can skip that one if you need to. <laughs> and then, so for this show, for this episode, we had initially talked about just trying to make sure we read the first three episodes. And I know for myself, I I just kept straight on, yeah. head down, read the entire run. And then I read the two Defenders issues because I had to know how someone tried to put a bow on it. And that's, you know, yeah. for what it's worth, I it is what it is. I it, let's Yeah, I don't want to be too negative. So let's just say it is what it is. It's not, yeah. It, so I, I would actually advise people not to not to feel compelled to go there. Yeah, put it together in your in your imagination. I'm not going to tell anybody not to read a Marvel comic, but I'm <laughs> telling you don't don't rush there looking for answers. There's over 27,000 Marvel comics on Marvel Unlimited, so there's many choices for you once you finish <laughs> you these ten issues. You were so good at this. <laughs> Mark, uh, you know Steve Gerber obviously being such a huge part of this conversation. From a bird's eye view, could you, I mean, at this time, it's, in a way, it's unbelievable to to read, you know, without any context and know the same person is writing this and Howard the Duck right around the same time. Yeah. They're so different. But they what they do have in common is both being like, they both, they have one foot in the Marvel Universe for sure, but both of them are kind of towing over the line into yeah. their own thing. Yeah. Could you talk about what makes, in your eyes, what makes a Steve Gerber book a Steve Gerber book? What's so special about it? There is a, there's a slight weirdness to everything. There, mm -hmm. Nothing is normal. Nothing is quite as it seems. And that was very much Steve. Steve was very much uh, you know, pushing back against suburbia, pushing back against traditional you know, 2.5 kids, station wagon, that sort of life. And so Steve was always looking for 
the weird sort of inexplicable turn. So the def his defenders run is along with the Celestial Madonna stuff, which from in, in Avengers by Stephen Goldhart is my favorite stuff of the of the seventies. My favorite, some of my favorite Marvel comics of all time because it's straightforward superhero stuff, but there is that undercurrent of bizarre. Where did you come up with this? This is nothing like anything else in any Marvel comic. It's not, you know, it's unsettling. There's some, that's that's something about it too. I mean, Steve was also good at playing with your emotions in a in a more sophisticated, sort of more nuanced way mm -hmm. than his predecessors. All right, so you grow up, you're taught from an early age that, you know the world makes sense, you know, that, that, you know, advertisers are telling the truth, that politicians are telling the truth. You know, when you're a kid, you know, you're brought up thinking in that relative, like, sphere of safety that you're in. And Steve was one of the guys who sort of came along and said, kind of, you know, without much nuance, it's not quite that way. The world's not quite as safe and as uh, sterile as you think it is, kid. And there weren't a whole lot of outlets for that. Mad Magazine was the forerunner of that. Mad Magazine's big claim to fame, really, at the end of the day, was that it taught kids that advertisers were full of crap. <laughs> no. And that a lot of what was being fed to you was baloney. And Steve sort of took that baton and ran with it. I, I like that you, you talk about the weird because one of the things that, you know, uh, the, there's a ton of things that struck me about this book, but it was just thinking about even the villains that are used in this book. You've got Nitro, who's now fairly well known because of Civil War, but Blockbuster, El Gato. El Gato, uh, right. Yeah. Like El Gato, <laughs> Electro is cool, but bringing in Full Killer, who's not even like the original Full Killer. Uh, and then my one of my favorites of like weird Marvel, Ruby Thursday, because she's just... Yes, nuts. that's the headmen. Do you know the origin of the headmen and how they came about? I don't. All right, so this is awesome. So Gerber's <laughs> looking for some Defenders villains and he puts in the headmen. The trick is that, the, the gimmick is that they all have something weird about their heads. That was Jerry who had the, the face that had melted. You had uh, the guy with the head, human head on the gorilla body. And you had Ruby Thursday, which is a play on the Rolling Stones tune, with just a, a, a big red sphere for a head. And say anything, but it would turn into different things. You never quite know what was going on in her head. Um, there was a fourth head man. And I'm, I'm going to turn in my Marvel membership card because I can't remember who the fourth head man is. <laughs> oh, the, the, the mystic, right? The guy in the turban. Mm. So uh, he brought these characters on and they're, they're weird and they're bizarre. But what's interesting is that they all came from the same comic. Like Steve had, around the office picked up this copy of Weird Wonder Tales, which at that point was a reprinting a bunch of 1950s Marvel comics. And each of those stories, unrelated, I mean, there was an anthology comic from the 50s. Those characters came from those three stories. And that is, I, I just like that little bit of Marvel trivia. That is the, that is the uh, secret origin of the headman is that he picked up a reprint comic and said, all three of the characters in these stories who were bizarre, I can put them together into a mar modern Marvel comic. Amazing. When Ruby Thursday hits the MCU, that's going to be something I pull out as a little nugget. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> that is so goddamn delightful to me yeah. that Mark Wade's line for turning in his membership to the Mary Marvel Marching Society is not being able to remember the fourth headman. <laughs> that is, I know. that's Look, the level we're talking about, <laughs> dude. I can I can only name thirty eight states, but I can tell you who the first person to yell Avengers Assemble was. By the way, do you know the who who was the first Avenger to yell Avengers Assemble? I'm putting it to the group. Is it Janet? Nope. Jarvis. Nope. Then I don't know. I'm out. It's Giant Man. Hmm. Wow. Issue 15, last panel. He's, uh, he's, he's the first to coin the phrase Avengers Assemble. And then Cap gets the credit because on the cover of 16, he's holding up a shield and screaming <laughs> Avengers Assemble. So Steve gets the swipe of the credit. But yeah. So this is the kind of insane minutia that fills up my head. So when I can't think of the fourth headman or when I can't remember 
exactly who was in the Avengers in issues 50 and 51. It just <laughs> makes me crazy. I, I love that because as someone who back again, when people could travel and people could be together, yeah. um, uh, I one of my favorite things in the world was always being able to just be a fly on the wall of um, Marvel Comics Creative Summits. Right. I, and I could be wrong, my memory of, of back when in the days of yore when these things were happening would be that Mark Wade and Dan Slott are off in a corner together, yeah. no doubt hashing out yeah. uh, uh, who the fourth head man really right. was. And Brevoort, um, uh, you know, with Brevoort oh, yeah. right there in the mix. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It, with it's, it's less Dan and it's more Tom. Tom and I just play <laughs> tennis back and forth with this stuff. Like it's just my favorite thing in the world is to come up with a Marvel trivia question that Tom can't answer and vice versa we just do this all day i can't long. imagine yeah i cannot imagine yeah that, that's <laughs> that's tough stuff um all right we're not going to be able to really talk in depth about the rest the full series and i think that that's okay i want our listeners to fully read this um but for you mark is there a a, a moment or an issue or something that sticks out as like and when someone says omega the unknown that that's what blazes into your brain yeah how do i say this without spoilers um, it's the fate of Ned. It's the fate of his friend. Ned. Me too. Oh my God. I, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. When, when Ned stumbles into the school, that's Ugh. again, that's all we can say without, without spoiling everything. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Tucker? What, what, what was, the, was there uh, honestly, you? that, that comes to mind as well for me. That was like, again, I, I was reading for this for the first time and I won. I was just, I think for me, I'm still digesting it. There's nothing else. Yeah, nothing else had ever been. I'm here to tell you, as somebody who yeah. was there at the time, nothing else with that sort of that sort of impact and, and, and that story that has been told a bunch more times since then. That story had never been told in comics before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a sophisticated, and and I, I love how you pointed that out. Yeah, the emotions that he's playing with are really nuanced, and what he's saying subtextually on a lot of these times, even if it's more of the gestalt of what he's saying as opposed to anything in particular yeah. feels so um, it, it feels so specific and kind of technicolor in a way. It feels really, really wide ranging in a way that um, I think makes other, not to compare, but it, other colors of right. other books or series seem a little bit um, dimmer in comparison. It, there's it's, yeah, it's there's this really, idea really that yeah, you could read, read Fantastic Four without any slight to the people who are writing them. They were great books, but you could read Fantastic Four and Spider Man and Captain America in one sitting. But then you picked up a Steve Gerber comic and you knew right away you were going into a slightly different world, slightly out of tune with the rest of what you just read. Mm -hmm. The other big thing I wanted to hit before we let you go, Mark, is uh, Omega's near silence and how we he doesn't speak until the fourth issue and the first thing that he says is why and it's this whisper yeah. I, that to me was so impactful yeah. so fantastic i freaking steve liked it steve liked the traffic in characters that didn't say anything i mean remember man thing couldn't speak ruby thursday couldn't speak it's steve i don't know i've never really thought about why that is or whatever until just the second but that, that deserves a Tom Brevoort conversation. Mm. Doesn't everything in our lives. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. I would love it if we could have you come back again another time. and But talk about maybe one of your books, a little behind the scenes on something sure. that you've done. That would be super fun. Um, Happy to. And and I think I speak for you as well, Tucker. Thank you for suggesting this because I also had never read oh, this. Yeah. I only read the, the remake, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago. So this was great. It was really great. All right, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad I, you know, clued you into something new that you dug. And I'm happy to come back whenever you like. Fantastic. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. All right, you bet. Mark Wade, what a pleasure it is to see that man, to talk to that man. It is. It's always a little bit of a challenge for me personally because uh, I, I know I'm diving into the deep end with not only one of the goats. But uh, of creating Marvel Comics, but of knowing Marvel Comics. Um, but uh, it couldn't be a nicer guy. It couldn't be a more insightful guy on these things. It's so much fun to talk. And dear listeners, if you have a Mark Wade story you'd want to hear about, like from behind the scenes from Mark's POV, let us know. You oh, can yeah. uh, tweet to me, Agent M. Tweet to Tucker Marcus. Um, you can email 
Well, you can use my This Week in Marvel email, twimpodcast at marvel.com. Um, you can always just send us a note. We're, we're open to suggestions, but his body of work is so big and so cool. There's so yeah. many great possibilities with Mark. So look for that in a future, future episode. But that about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Pagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis audio development manager. He is also known as Barton the Unknown. Ooh. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.